In our lives, we come across obstacles all the time. They, they put us in a position to decide whether we're going to trust God and believe what he says, or are we going to rely on ourselves? And this happens for us not only in the big things that come at us in this life, but they're also frequent in the small things. When the temptations of life come before us, will we believe what God has promised us is enough? Are we going to believe God's law and trust that his truth is what is best for our lives? Each temptation that we have is a crisis of faith. Will we believe God and hold fast to what he has commanded and called us to? Will we strive for holiness? Will we desire to conform our lives to God's will that is revealed in his holy word? I like to think that we would stand tall in the face of the big temptations that could potentially come before us. The temptations to do things like renounce our faith or something big like that. But we often find ourselves humbled by the fact that we compromise and we sin against God every day. And so what do we need? We need strength to stand strong. And we need to know who God is and we need to trust in his word. And this is what comes to mind as we, as we come to the book of Genesis again this morning. Because we're in a rather interesting passage. What do we do with this one? We see the, the value here now of, of working through Scripture as we, as we uh, are here every week because, as I've said before, there is no way this passage would have come up if I was choosing the topics. It's not just not one I would choose. But there is so much here for us, so much for us to consider. It's an interesting story about a giant of the faith who fails to trust God, who does not pass a, tense, a test of faith. Now, before we dig into our points for this week, I think we need a, a very quick refresher because uh, we probably would have needed one anyway, but with my absence last week, it's been two weeks since we were here in Genesis, and so we need to remember how this story has been set up for us. At the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12, we were introduced to this guy named Abram, and we learn about him first in the genealogies. And so what do we know about him from this? He is in the line to the promised one who would crush the head of the serpent. And as we read that, we, we came across some very interesting information about Abram. Or more specifically, his wife. His wife is, is barren. Now remember, this is a genealogy. This is the line that shows us the promise of God and his covenant faithfulness. But that happens through children, right? So this is quite a snag. The wife of someone in the line to the Messiah is barren. A line can't continue if you can't have children. And so the question that we're meant to feel in this part of Genesis is, will the promise of God fail? Will God call an audible maybe? Will, will the barrenness of the womb of Sarah, Sarai be too much for God to overcome? Well, we know the answer to that. But God proves his point by revealing himself to Abram 
And then what does he do? He actually doubles down. He says, the promise is going to come through you and Sarai and nowhere else. Abram tries, we know from the story, he tries to solve this problem on his own, but God says, no, the line is through Sarai. God makes a promise to Abram that from him will come a great nation and through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And that's really an amazing promise because not only is Sarai barren, but she's old. And Abram is old. But despite the evidence against the promise that God has made, what does Abram do? He believes God. And we read later on in Genesis, and we, it's quoted in the New Testament, Abram believes God, and it is credited to him as righteousness. And so what does he do? He leaves his home country and his family, and he goes to the place that God has promised. He arrives there. We talked about this two weeks ago. And what did he do? He built an altar to God. And he still hasn't even received anything yet. He has, doesn't have a child. He has, doesn't have enough people to overcome this land filled with Canaanites. But what does he do? He believes God and praises God for giving it to him, even though he hasn't received it yet. If ever there was proof that Abram believed God and had faith, that was it right there. But then what happens? We come up against where we are today. Suddenly, Abram is moving on from the place that God promised him. And so we're going to break down these 10 verses into three parts so that we can understand the story and hopefully apply this passage of Scripture to our lives. The first thing that we're going to see this week is that Abram leaves the land because of a famine. There's, there's no food. And he has some family with him, and he has his livestock. And while it doesn't seem like a big deal to move where you can, to where you can get food in the middle of a famine... The question we have to ask is, does Abram trust God to provide? He has shown him the land that his offspring will occupy, but he's leaving? There's, there's something else to consider in this relocation that we'll see. He is leaving Bethel and the altar that he built to God there. And we'll take a look at what Bethel means and think about what it means the, about the fact that he left as, as we progress through this. Secondly, we see that Abram lies to Pharaoh. Abram does not just trust God for food. He also doesn't trust God for protection and provision. He also puts the covenant of marriage that he has with Sarai into jeopardy. And you can see the issue there. God has promised that from Abram will come a great nation. Yet Abram is willing to tell a lie that puts his wife in danger, the one that the great nation will come through. And lastly, the Lord afflicts the house of Pharaoh. God is not pleased with the actions of Abram. And so he does something about it. Why? Because he's made a promise to Abram, and that promise is to come through Sarai. And so what we see is that God is faithful, even when Abram is not. And so now as we land in this passage, we're going to start off by just looking at verse 10. When we left off with Abram, Abram, you know what the hardest part about preaching this part of Genesis is? You want to say Abraham every time, but he's not called that yet. Struggled. I don't know how many times I typed Abraham during the week, and I had to correct it. So forgive me. But when we left off with Abram, Sarai and his little band of folk, we had them at Bethel. That was the land that his ancestors would inherit. But it was occupied by the Canaanites. But God said he was going to give them that land. And so he built an altar there to God. He, he believed God. And so even though he had not gotten possession of the land, 
what did he do? He offered that sacrifice to God in thanks. And now, so, as I said, it's important that we understand the meaning of the word Bethel or Bethel. It means the house of God. Beth means house and El means God. So now you understand why so many churches are Bethel Church, Bethel Reformed Church, Bethel Christian Reformed Church, the house of God. And so this was where Abraham was going to set up shop. We read about the altar and his, his setting up tents there last week. So now we are seeing that Abram is pulling up these roots from where he knows this is the house of God and he's heading somewhere else. Now he has a legitimate reason. There's a famine and he doesn't want those under his charge to die of starvation. A legitimate reason for, for getting out of town. But at the same time, we need to remember that God has made a promise to Abram. He's going to make him into a great nation. And this isn't dependent upon Abram, but yet we get no indication here that Abram is obeying God by heading down the road to Egypt. While Abram is a model of, of faith to us, we see that he is just as guilty of unbelief as anyone else, right? He has followed God into the land that he was promised, but then he doesn't believe that God will provide? Well, then we also have the issue of worship. He's made an altar there, and as I explained, Bethel is the, is the house of God. He's, he's leaving the place where he is giving sacrifices to God and worshiping him. Now, this might not seem very significant, but we need to take note that we don't see that he is following any direction from God here to leave. In the way that the story is told here in Genesis, we get the idea that this is Abram acting on his own. We're meant to see that Abram is, is doubting this promise. This promise he's believed, he's now in doubt. Now, we often have this idea that, that the people in the Bible stories are the perfect example of faith. But truly, but truly, the Bible is raw. And so many of the lives of the heroes of the faith are so extremely flawed. And I think this has a lot to do, the way we view them has a lot to do with that our Sunday school lessons focused on the good stuff, right? They, they did that because what do you do with this passage, right? There's a whole lot of stuff when you read your Bible as an adult, you're like, boy, I guess I know why they didn't teach that in Sunday school. But we have to get past this, this idea that they're these, these perfect heroes of the faith. They are flawed. And we learn just as much from their flaws as we do from when they're successful. And what we see here is that the promise of God is strong, but we are not. Even though Abram has shown us remarkable faith, he's not perfect. He is flawed, and we see that this is apparent in the retreat from the land that God promised him, but also in the actions that he does as he arrives in Egypt. Which brings us to our second point for today, as we see the deception that Abram and Sarai attempt to pull off in Egypt as we look at verses 11 through 16. And this whole situation is awkward, right? Uh, imagine how this would have gone down as you were traveling to Egypt with your wife. Now, I'm sure she might have been honored that you thought she was so attractive that everybody else would agree with you. But, yeah, this is, this is an interesting conversation. Now, in the ancient Near East, hospitality was important. But if you were a stranger... 
you were, you were subject to some danger. We, we see here that Abram wants to avoid all of that and, and that he's not trusting God. He's not trusting that God will protect them. It's a reoccurring theme that we're seeing over and over here. The, the whole thing is just this awkward situation. His concern is that even at 65 years of age, Sarai is so attractive that when the Egyptians find out that she is his wife, they will kill him so that they can have her. So the plan here was to formulate this, this half-truth. Sarai is actually the half-sister of Abram. Now, now, naturally, we're taken aback by that, by the fact that he was married to his half-sister, but we have to remember that marriage between close relation wasn't banned until the book of Leviticus, I think chapter 17. We're still, in a, we're still a long ways away from Leviticus 17, so this isn't against the moral code for him to be married to her. And we talked about this back when we talked about where Cain got his wife. So if you're interested in this topic, you can go back into the sermon archives and listen to the sermon on, how Cain, on, on uh, Cain to understand this a little bit better. Anyway, instead of trusting God, what does Abram, Abram do? He makes the decision to lie or to tell a half-truth about Sarai by leaving out that important detail that they are husband and wife. He's concerned that things won't go well for him, and he assumes that this little half-truth might help him stay alive. And while it's easy to assume the worst here, I, I doubt Abram was willing to trade his wife's honor for his life. He probably didn't see things happening so fast, and that they would be, he probably thought they'd be out of Egypt after they got some food, and yeah, they nobody's going to take her or marry her in that short amount of time. We, we don't want to assume the worst here that Abram was willing to give up Sarai's honor. But things did get out of hand pretty quickly. This half-truth backfired because the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a beautiful woman and it wasn't just the people in the streets who admired her. It went up the chain and the princes of Pharaoh saw her and she was taken into the house of Pharaoh. And we read that this ended up being a pretty lucrative deal actually for Abram. Plenty of earthly possessions were given to him in exchange for Sarai. So what a turn of events we have, we've had here. Abram's initial unbelief to leave the land God had promised him because he didn't trust God to provide has now turned into having the promise of a child in jeopardy because he didn't trust God to protect he and Sarai. And so we need to stop for a second and appreciate the tension that's going on here in the text. They've left the land. Now, they can go back, but they've left the land. It, it was still an act of unbelief. But this latest development puts the promise of God into question, right? If Sarai is in the house of Pharaoh, she's not in the house of Abram. And if you're an ancient Hebrew, hearing this story for the first time, how terrible would this have been to hear this story? She's in the house of Pharaoh. You're an ancient Hebrew and you're in slavery and you're hearing this story about how your ancestors have been taken in by Pharaoh. Everything is in trouble. The very ones who are holding you captive in slavery in Egypt have your ancestor. This can't be. What's going to happen? You feel the tension in the text. Abram and Sarai can't have the next child of the promise, if Sarai is in the house of Pharaoh. The promise of God is in trouble. 
You get the idea. We're, we're meant to feel that the line to the Messiah is in jeopardy, that the promise of God is going to fail because of the unbelief of Abram and because of the wickedness of Pharaoh. You can feel that tension here. So what needs to happen? Well, what happens in these stories? God intervenes. He has to, because even though Abram has done something to mess things up, God still is going to keep his promise. And so that gets us to our third point for today, that the Lord afflicts the house of Pharaoh. God has to intervene. And we don't know the details here. It says that there were great plagues, but I don't think that means like the Nile turning to blood or locusts invading and devouring everything. Uh, While these weren't like the big plagues in Exodus, whatever the affliction that was happening to Pharaoh's house was substantial enough that Pharaoh knows what's up. Whether this was revealed to him directly by God in some way, or whether Sarai revealed some info to him about about her being married to Abram, or maybe it was just a, a good guess by Pharaoh, we don't know. But he knows this affliction, these plagues, are not normal. Something bigger is going on, and so what does he do? He confronts Abram. Now, I read this, and I think the affliction must have been pretty serious if the Pharaoh is sparing the life of Abram here. Pharaoh is clearly concerned for his safety, because I can imagine the first instinct of someone with that much power, a Pharaoh, I'm sure his first instinct was to kill Abram and ask questions later, right? That's how those things work when you have that much power. But that doesn't even seem to be an option for Pharaoh. He puts all of this on Abram. He says, what is this you've done to me? And this is a serious question. And he knows the whole situation. The entire deception that Abram, Abram crafted has been exposed. And so what happens? Sarai is returned to Abram and they leave. And even in the midst of God's, even in the midst of Abram's disobedience and deception, we see that God is preserving the promise. He's preserving Abram and Sarai. Pharaoh clearly fears what will happen if there is action taken against Abram because after, uh, after they leave, because he gives orders. Notice that in the text, it says he gives orders to people. In other words, he doesn't want people chasing them down and taking care of them after they leave. He's not going to run down Abram later and take care of business. So there's clearly fear that the affliction of God would return or even have greater consequences if they harm Abram. And why would that be? Because God is protecting the promise. But we also see something else important. He sent Abram away with all that he had. Now remember, Abram was given livestock and servants. And now we read that they left with it in the midst of a famine. In the midst of all this happening to the Pharaoh, they're still being blessed. Even though Abram shows unbelief, God is blessing Abram. He's keeping his promise. He's protecting Abram. The story of Abram is not going to end with his starvation in the wilderness. God is a covenant God, and he keeps, he keeps his promises that he makes to his people. He is going to bless Abram, and he's going to make him a great nation. Now, as I said when we started, this is kind of a bizarre 10 verses, right? What, 
What do we do with this passage? How do we understand this in a Christ-centered way and apply it to our lives as believers in the 21st century? I want us to walk away from here today with two concrete applications as we, as we desire to walk in light of God's word and gospel as we come away from this text and we live our lives this week. The first thing that we need to remember is that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. He is faithful to his people. This is on display for us as we work through Genesis. There are times in our lives where things seem messed up, There are times where it seems as though God is not in control, right? In fact, yesterday, sorry, I shouldn't probably have brought this up, but now I've led into it. Yesterday, I helped officiate the funeral of a former youth student who was 23. It didn't feel like God was in control yesterday. And that's the things that come into our lives. Those type of circumstances can cause doubt in us. But in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of pain, in the midst of even famine, as we've seen in the text, and even in the midst of the unfaithfulness of his people, God is still in control. As we look at this story, we see that God made a promise that would make Abram a great nation and would ultimately lead to the coming of Jesus to save us from our sin, that would give us an answer in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of pain. Nothing could stop that promise. Abram put it in jeopardy by his unbelief. But what did God do? God worked all things together for good. As we will see as we progress through Genesis, And through the the life of Abram, God is keeping his promise. And when he keeps that promise to Abram, the deeper story is that he's keeping his promise to you. That Christ would come and save you from sin, death, and hell. Because that promise has extended through the ages, all through his people throughout the ages. And right now, that's you and I. God promises salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ by grace through faith. And even though we are like Abram, In our sin and unbelief, God is still at work. God keeps his promises to his people. And so we respond in repentance and in faith for our sin and for our failure. We look to Jesus and understand that he is our only hope. Let's be honest about the adventure of Abram that we read today. Without the intervention of God, the promise is over. He likely ends up separated from Sarai, or he ends up dead. But God intervened. God kept the promise like he always does. God rescues his people. And in Christ, we have been rescued from sin and death and hell. And so may the Holy Spirit convict us of our sin and unbelief, and then comfort us with the truth that we're forgiven in Jesus Christ. And in response, may we walk on the path of his law that he has set before us. And with that in mind, our second point of application today is to trust God. Daily, daily, we have opportunities to trust God or to go our own way. We're confronted with sin and we're called to believe God and follow him. 
We should see these as opportunities to exercise our faith, to grow in faith. Yes, God uses everything, including the failures of his saints, to work all things for his glory. But let's imagine for a second if Abram had remained in the land and trusted that God would lead him out of the famine. He had an opportunity to trust that God would keep the promise to his people. But as I've mentioned so many times over the years, the Old Testament is, is a continual roller coaster of ups and downs of the people of God, right? Faith, or faith, unbelief, faith, unbelief, over and over. They believe God, they make a covenant with him, and then they fall into sin and unbelief, and, and they're sent into exile. The people are in the land, but they can't keep God's commandments. They choose sin and unbelief, and God sends them into exile. Well, in the case of Abram, he had the opportunity to trust God, just like the people who are going to come after him, that roller coaster story. Abram had the opportunity to trust God, but instead he left, and it led to fear. It led to humiliation. Well, this week, you and I are going to have the opportunity every day to choose to trust God and exercise our faith muscles. Every time we reject sin, we are trusting in the promise of God, and we're growing in faith. And so the challenge for us today to grow in holiness is to take a look at our lives and ask, how can I trust God this week? Where am I most weak? What habits do I have that are a challenge to my trusting God as I should? Those are important questions. So we step away from here today with a trust that we're not going to do that on our own. We have heard the word. We know that God in Christ has reconciled us to himself by bearing the wrath of God for our sin. And so we go into the world each week trusting that the Holy Spirit will be at work in us to make us holy, to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. That's the promise that God makes to his people. We are not left alone in the wilderness. God is faithful. His word and spirit are here to guide us and to work in us. So let us trust God because he is the covenant God who keeps his promises. Amen.